Jeff, we have made it through the original run of Power Pack. And along the way, we've had guests, we've done a live show, and we've done interviews with the creators. Yeah, uh, I, I remember. I, I, I was there, Rick. You remember that, right? Yeah, yeah, fine, fine, fine. But did you ever really think that we could have produced a mildly successful podcast about a comic book that we love? Uh, truthfully, uh, no. No, I didn't. Wait, wait. I thought you always had faith in us. Me? Yes. You. Oh, you. I don't know, man. I was surprised that you actually became a competent editor. While I may be a professional editor of comic books and not podcasts, I still think the word competent might be a bit too high praise. Man, taking a hit from my co-host and Carl Potts, and I have to edit this? Not fair. Welcome, dear listener, to our podcast. Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer. Analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures and absorbing alcohol. I am Jeff. And I am Rick. And welcome to our guest, Carl Potts. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting for us because this, it almost feels like we're a little bit of a Pokemon collectors where we're, we've got to get them all. We've got to get all of the creators that worked on the original series. And this is, this is really great for us because we have spoken, of course, to June and Wheezy, and they both have talked about you, your very integral part of how this all came together. And so this has been one of our, our hopes that we could talk to you one day. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, glowing praise, I think, is what comes to mind, is what they said, basically. <laughs> My money has been well spent. <laughs> <laughs> We've got lots of questions to ask you, and I know that we're going to go off topic as soon as possible, but we'll try to keep it in. We'll try to right. keep it in here. And I know that you've given us a lot of information, too, and you've done a lot of interviews in the past. So I, I do want to start at the beginning because it's a good place to start with where you kind of got your love of the media that you now help to propagate. What type of entertainment did you really consume as a child? Uh, books, comics, movies, TV? Was a child of, uh, you know, the late 50s through the uh, early 70s, TV was definitely a big part of it, especially Saturday morning cartoons and then uh, a lot of the ongoing series that, from the three major broadcasters at the time. Back then, there were very few channels. But I read a fair amount, everything from every comic I could find to a variety of uh, fiction books, initially stuff aimed at kids. As I got a bit older, I got into kind of fantasy sword and sorcery stuff, and uh, particularly um, Stafford and the Grey Mauser and Robert E. Howard, uh, Fritz Lieber and Robert E. Howard. Then into science fiction, starting out, I guess, with Heinlein, and then going off into Kurt Vonnegut territory. But I also read a lot of nonfiction. I am a big history buff, and uh, one of the periods I'm a major buff for is uh, World War II. Uh, both of my parents are intimately involved in the Pacific Theater during World War II, so that might be part of the reason. So I read a lot of that. Uh, I've got I've got a, such a huge library on World War II stuff that every night I go to sleep afraid that the attic ceiling uh, ceiling is just going to come <laughs> crashing down on me. Uh, there's so many books up there. I'm also a major amateur marine biologist and ichthyologist, and I was always torn when um, 
it came time to you know, try and figure out what my profession was going to be between continuing on. At the time, I was actually the manager of a large record store. You guys know what a record store is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, intimately familiar. We grew up with Tower Records and, and a lot of the uh, smaller little ones. I've got a little record collection still. Tower, yeah. Tower's biggest competitor was a chain called Warehouse Records, and I was the manager for one of those in California. Or go into marine biology or go into music because growing up a California boy, it was mandatory that you were into a band. You were in a band. And then, of course, uh, commercial art was uh, a bent towards comics. So I started out, for some reason, that the counselor I spoke to convinced me to go into music initially. But after the first quarter or semester, I, uh, I switched to the commercial art course and took off from there. So that's how I ended up basically concentrating on commercial art and comics. Okay, I got to piggyback off of this then. Since you were in California and everyone had to have a band, did you have a band? I was in a band, yeah. Okay. Tell us about that if you would, please. Yeah, what type of music was it? The rock and roll person. Not rock and roll so much in the classic sense from the, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, but more of a 60s rock and progressive rock and uh, related genres. The band I was in, the lead guitarist was someone I went to high school with, even though we, we didn't form the band until we were freshmen in college. And he was a big blues person. I was like the, the rock and progressive park person. And the drummer, who was a, a friend of, uh, from high school of my girlfriend, was a big hard rock person. So we were constantly, you know, pulling in all these different directions <laughs> and, um, very eclectic playlist, as you might imagine. We'd even combine things in weird ways, juxtapose things. Like we, we, we did a very authentic, faithful version of Folsom Prison Blues, the Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. And with that last note, we faded into, as faithful as we could manage it, a version of Pink Floyd's Be Careful With That Act You Gene. <laughs> and, uh, That's a good blend. That would really throw people in the audience for a loop, particularly those who weren't in <laughs> normal mindset. I just thought it was a, a lot of fun. I always thought I was like a mediocre bassist and guitarist, but when I learned more about it, I realized I wasn't even mediocre. <laughs> so I kind of I still have my instruments, but I very rarely drag them out. There's just not enough time in the day, but if there was, I would probably be uh, relearning how to, to play guitar and bass because I, I miss it. That's really nice. awesome. That's that's great. What was the band's name? Oh, man, it, it changed constantly. At one point, it was temporarily indefinite. And that turned out to be a problem because when there were flyers that went out for a concert we were going to be playing at, the term temporarily indefinite up there, half the people thought it meant that they weren't sure if the concert was going to happen mm -hmm. or not. And then there was some like really hokey you know, early 70s type progressive rock name like uh, something unicorn or something like that. Mm. Just, uh, uh, and that that seemed dopey at the time and, and just proved to be more so as time went on. So we ended up just playing and not worrying about the name so much. That works. Yeah, I've got uh, friends that have bands and it is always funny to be like, oh, hey, they're doing really great. Oh, they're playing another They're They've changed their name. The band is... <laughs> Uh, one, two, three, four, four of the five members are the same, but there's a fifth person So I, that's new. So I guess they needed to make an entirely new band. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that your parents from the Navy, and, and you've talked about this on a lot of interviews before. How do you think your experience as a child and moving with the Navy and, and or moving with the military and being immersed in that, how did that help shape you grow up? It sounds like you 
became very fascinating in history and, and naval or military books. But Yeah, well, my father was a 20-year Navy man, and he enlisted before World War II. He was from Tennessee, and he married my mother a little while after the war, and she, even though she wasn't Filipino, she was born and raised in the Philippines uh, before the war and was a captive of the Japanese. Her and her whole family were captives of the Japanese for over three years in Manila. It was not a pleasant experience. So when they met after the war, even though my, my mother was half Irish American and half Japanese, she was an American citizen by birth because she was an American father and she, the Philippines was an American territory. So she was born there. But when they tried, decided to get married in California shortly after the war, California still had laws that anybody who was at least half Japanese could not marry a Caucasian. So they had to drive up to Washington State and elope to get married there where the laws were relaxed. Relax. I was born in Oak Knoll Naval Hospital in Oakland and was raised pretty much in the town right next door, San Leandro, for most of my life, with the exception of two and a half years when my father was stationed in Hawaii. I was there from preschool through first grade, so it was a pretty formative time. I have fabulous uh, memories of being a kid growing up in Hawaii, with one major exception when I was running around barefoot and hit a rusty nail. The Navy doctor that, that pried it out of me gave me a tetanus shot in the same hole it went in. Yep, that sounds like the military. <clears throat> yep. Why do why redo work? Right, right. Uh, yeah, he didn't want he didn't want didn't want to make a new opening, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then we moved back to San Leandro. I started second grade there. And then my father was stationed for six months in San Diego, so we moved down there. And then he was stationed back up in the Bay Area. So I had to go back to the school I originally started second grade at and finish it there. But the school systems in California didn't all run on the same lesson programs and, and so on. And the school I ended up in was way ahead as far as it came to reading and writing than uh, the school in San Diego. So I had to really bust my ass to, to make sure I graduated second grade there. So in Hawaii, you know, it was like I said, it was, it was just a fabulous place to, to grow up in, but uh, it was also an incredibly diverse society there. Me being born to a Eurasian and having all these aunts and uncles and cousins around me that were Eurasian, I was used to that sort of interracial thing. And to me, that was the norm. And in Hawaii, it was somewhat similar to that. But there were, like my father, a lot of World War II vets there. And a lot of them didn't have my father's attitude. They still despised the Japanese and anything that had to do with them. Some of the older kids in school got wind that I was part Japanese. So they, a few of them started calling me a uh, dirty Jap or whatever like that, just for the hell of it, because they picked up that stuff from their mm -hmm. father. And so I got an early taste of, a little tiny taste of what it was like uh, to be the, the target of that kind of racial attack verbal attack. It's fun to have the inheritance of intolerance that people get where it's just like aping things that they don't even understand. It's like, well, my dad says that. So I say it too. So that I have to believe this. It's like, Ugh. yeah. Uh, odds are, if you're going to rebel against that, it's not going to be when you're, you know, in elementary school. No, <laughs> so, it's yeah. it's going to be later. People I've yeah. known that have uh, gone through that, that have, uh, they hit a, hit a stage where they're like, well, wait a minute, this actually is wrong. And that's not the kind of person I want to be. And then they really kind of become at odds with their family because of like 
you got to expand, yep. you got to grow. And this is not kind of a right behavior to have. Yep. And then San Leandro at the time, the town of Strunk Western Town grew up, it was very strange when it came to racial relations. It was incredibly integrated. It had every type of Caucasian, every type of Hispanic, every type of Asian there. There were Christians and Jews. Uh, one, a couple of my friends were Native American. Everything except African-Americans. Apparently, um, I found out years later, the local real estate people had a, uh, a secret plan to keep, keep all the uh, African-Americans out of, the, out of San Leandro. The closest uh, looking person I, I found in school that looked like Black was an exchange student from Samoa. <laughs> that, was, that was the closest thing I could find. But everything else was incredibly diversified. There was no racial conflict between the Asians and the whites and the Hispanics and you know, religious singer or anything like that. So it was a very bizarre thing to have this incredibly integrated and well-oiled machine with one gargantuan exception. One of the things that happened when I went to New York is that, you know, that was even more diverse there. It was great to to immerse myself into the New York scene. Did you always have an interest in drawing and art? And you talked that you had the interest in music and, and that sort of thing, but how did your family encourage you growing up with this? I, I can't really remember a time where I wasn't drawing something or other, sketching or doodling. One of the first things I remember being comic book related wasn't trying to emulate the comics themselves, but those ads they had in there for you know, for $1.98, get 5 million little tiny toy soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they'd have drawings. The best ones are the rest youth drawings of, um, you know, all these soldiers and things lined up. I try and emulate some of that sort of stuff because I, I guess I, I didn't realize how difficult that, <laughs> that was. It was, uh, so I, I was always interested in drawing. I, I, I took, you know, art classes in uh, junior high and uh, high school and I remember in high school, I think when I was a junior, I was doing a painting and it had a, uh, a human figure in it. It was uh, kind of this pseudo psychedelic thing and it had a human figure in it. And my teacher's looking at it and he goes, where the hell did you learn anatomy? And I said, Steve Ditko. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I can't remember if I had to explain to him who Steve Ditko was or not. He was a young guy, relatively young guy. Uh, in fact, he might have been he might have been a student teacher at that point. So I picked up a, a lot of you know basics of what I, I learned from looking at the comic artists I knew and admired. When I switched over to the commercial art class in uh, college, I uh, did a lot of different types of artwork there that I wasn't really doing on my own, which was good to expand uh, my uh, experience and abilities. It's really hard to imagine a time where I was you know starting out with crayons. To I remember. One time, boy, it must have been maybe in third grade at most, I was in the backyard with a box of crayons and some paper at the picnic table, and my father was doing some yard work, and I decided to draw the yard, and I took out a, a green crayon to do the grass. And I started doing that, and he, he looks over and he goes, come down here with me and look real close at this line. So we got down there again, and I'm seeing like there's a million shades of green and brown and everything in there. So for a short while there, I almost became an impressionist. I had every color up there, you know, <laughs> doing that stuff. So it was just, uh, my parents both had creative, visually creative abilities as well as creative abilities elsewhere outside of the visual arts. Uh, my father was a um, master carpenter, also what used to be called mechanical drawing or drafting 
was all done by hand back then uh, for blueprints and plans and so on. And unfortunately, I didn't learn that from him like I really should have because he was always there if I needed something planned or, or made out of wood, he would do it for me. And I'd be very happy with the results, but uh, I didn't really uh, take the time to, to learn it from him, which I wish I had now. But my mother also, when we were particularly in Hawaii, she, uh, in addition to playing the, the ukulele, she did some painting there and took some painting classes and so on. So they both had creative talent and they both seemed to, you know, be fairly encouraging. I mean, like, I remember when I got to be a teenager, I wanted to take some continuing ed classes and art at UC Berkeley and so on. And they were happy to pay for them support me on that. And when I switched uh, from being one fairly impractical major from music to another one in commercial art, there was a way to <laughs> make it work or I would I would find something else to, to go into. I think we can all agree that uh, you did pretty well for yourself. Uh, generally, yeah. There's never been some rough times in there, but generally speaking. And then the other thing is that the, the career that I had when I was full-time in comics, it was, um, the vast majority of it was uh, the best experience during my adult life, I think, in a lot of ways, again, with some exceptions. But generally speaking, it was it was, uh, it was fabulous. And you can probably tell from speaking to some of the other people that worked on PowerPack that that was kind of a special period in the in the industry and the business. And we all, I think we all knew, knew it at the time. We just didn't think it was going to end as soon as it did. You always expect the times to keep on going and going and going. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, where did the fun times go? We were having yeah. a good time. <laughs> Yeah. We got sold again to who and they want to do what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean we're not doing as freeform kind of fun offshoot kind of wacky stuff that we're assuming is going to bring in some money, but if it doesn't, that's okay because we're enjoying ourselves. But yeah. Who's my boss today? Who's, yeah. who's? Yeah. The, the tail the tail is wagging the dog now? <laughs> we had a dog? <laughs> Carl, I've read some interviews about how fortunate you were to meet and receive guidance from some legendary creators when you were young. Who of those was your biggest supporter, you know, the, your best mentor? Well, that's hard to say, but the, the person who probably did the most to help me out was Jim Starlin. When I was just starting to consider making comics a professional career, there was a convention at the UC Berkeley campus. And right before then, a number of comics creators that had lived in New York had been were established enough to to move out west where they enjoyed it more, and that included uh, Jim Starlin, Alan Weiss, Frank Brenner, Steve Englehart, Tom Marzakowski, or maybe some others that I'm, I'm blanking out on. I met the three artists at a convention, and in particular, Starlin and Weiss were very helpful with giving me feedback, and they allowed me whenever I came up with a new batch of sample pages to call them up and. Go make an appointment to go over and show them to them and get more feedback. And eventually, Dan O'Neill asked Starlin to get him out of a, an emergency on an issue of Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter. And it basically needed to be penciled or at least laid out fairly tightly over like a four day weekend. And so he enlisted Alan Weiss and then me. And I basically penciled over, over Jim's layout, uh, really rough layouts, uh, some of the background figures and the backgrounds. He and Alan Weiss divvied up who was going to do the finished pencils on different characters and different scenes. And then it all went to Alan Milgram to try and make it look somewhat homogenous very quickly. But the rendering styles of Jim Starlin and Alan Weiss are, are not similar at all. It's kind of like, almost like having, you know, uh, Neil Adams and uh, 
Steve Ditko or Jack Kirby trying to pair up on a, you know, on a comic. The rendering <laughs> approaches are very different. But it was a lot of fun, and I, I learned a lot. And then uh, I told Starlin I, I was going to move to New York to try and break into comics. Uh, this would have been near mid-1975. Starlin asked me if I, I knew anybody in New York. And I said, uh, no, nah, I just figured I'd go out there and see what happened. I was incredibly naive, which, as we all know, is a nice term for ignorant. Mm-hmm. So he goes, um, let me make a few calls. So he ended up calling uh, Walt Simonson and Al Milgram, who were sharing an apartment in Forest Hills, Queens, and said, uh, this kid's coming out there. Can you guys put him up for a while till he gets his feet under him? And they said, sure. They took Jim's word for it that I was okay. It wasn't like a, an axe murderer or a sociopath or something. <laughs> so I flew out there, and it was like a, a red eye. And I get in early in the morning, and uh, I finally make my way to Forest Hills, Queens, and knock on the door around 1130 or so. And those guys are, are still asleep because they are the night owls. They're the ones who work all, all night. So I felt awkward about that. But they turned out to be two of the, the nicest humans on the planet. We're always, uh, we've always been friends since and uh, very supportive. And living in the same building at that time were Bernie Wrightson and Howard Chaikin. So I'm this geeky, would-be pro fan kid from California. And I'm hanging out with Wrightson, Chaikin, Milgram, and Simonson. And I was just like, I kept pinching myself. Starlin also occasionally would fly back to New York to line up, you know, his next work in person. And he decided to time one of his flights out there for right after I arrived. So my second day in New York, he takes me into the Marble offices in Manhattan and introduces me around. And I show my portfolio first to Archie Goodwin, who was in charge of the Marble Black and White books then. And Archie picks out an illustration I did, a science fiction illustration says, I could use this for an ad in the, in the uh, you know, one of the black and white titles. And he buys it from me and he asks Simonson to ink it. That's great. Uh, <laughs> and then Starlin walks me over to the British reprint department where they chop all of the Marvel stories in half because they, they do weekly comics there. And so they hire people, usually uh, youngsters, to try them out to do new splash pages for the second halves. And I ended up walking out of there with a, a small handful of assignments for these splash pages. And I found out years later, not from Starlin, uh, from Milgram, that the only reason I got those assignments was because the editor took Jim out of my earshot and said, I'll give this kid some work if you do a cover for him. <laughs> and he did that without telling me. So anyhow, Jim has always been very helpful and a supporter. And moved to New York, I, I also called up uh, continuity. I'd met uh, Neil Adams at a uh, 1973 San Diego convention where I tried to show him my work and he at first refused to comment on it because he thought it wasn't worth it. <laughs> I managed somehow to convince him to, to tell me what I needed to work on. And he named every aspect of drawing comics that there was. Told me if I worked really hard for at least a year and a half, he'd be willing to look at my work again. So two years later, I call up Continuity when I'm in New York and uh, ask them to come up and show my work then. And he liked it enough to ask me to start working there. Uh, they were just beginning to package three large black and white size comic magazines based on popular TV shows at the time, Six Million Dollar Man, Emergency in Space, 1999. And they had a crew of about four of us uh, young pencilers uh, penciling the stories. And then they had Neil and mostly Dick Giordano and occasionally another person up there, Russ Heath, inking the major 
figures. And then the backgrounds are being done by a couple of upstart anchors named Bob Wyatchik and Terry Austin. Oh, geez. <laughs> and so, you know, I started out doing these little tiny layouts. Neil had everybody take eight, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and fold it in quarters. Mm-hmm. And each tiny quarter was a basically a thumbnail drawing of a whole page. And then he'd go over them and anywhere he felt that the storytelling didn't work or the drawing was weak, he'd go with his flare pen and either beef up the drawing or sometimes redraw the whole panel without erasing anything that was there before or penciling something new. He, he just had it in his head and drew over it. So, And then we'd take those into a room. He had these giant artographs, which are fancy opaque projectors that would project straight down on the drawing table. And we could adjust the size to fit the page that we were working on, the panel we were working on, and trace off the basic shapes. And then uh, after that, we would do the tight pencils back at our desk. Um, and then that's from there, if uh, Neil approved it, it would go to the inking process. So by seeing what I originally did in those little tiny thumbnails, go through all these different stages and what ended up in the finished product, that's basically how I learned how to turn out professional looking work because uh, there wasn't a lot of really hands-on lessons there where there wasn't really time for that. One of the few things I remember Neil taking the time to show me for the emergency books was how to draw tires and wheels at angles and three quarters with with all these different ellipses working in and out of each other from the the tire to the wheel rim down to the hub back to the hub cap. It was a it's strange that that's the one thing he <laughs> he took time to explain clearly. But everything else was more a matter of just looking at this thumbnail and the finished piece of work going, ah, okay, that's how I should be doing it. That's my long-winded answer to whatever your original question was. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. That's all right. That's, all that's right. okay. <clears throat> I've read, read you uh, talking about that before, which is so great to hear. It's kind of part of the problem, I think, of the interview process where it's just like, oh, we're going to ask you some questions that you've answered a bazillion times. We want to try and hopefully get you with some new stuff as well. But if we don't, I apologize. I know that you, uh, you, know, you started as an, you know, as an artist and then you moved into being a storyboarder and then you became uh, an editor. I did read a thing saying that you're an amazing editor, especially since you have a legendary like spelling disability. But <laughs> so I apologize if that is offensive, but I, I'd read that no. and thought it was funny. But. But could you kind of tell us what a comic book editor does? Because I'm sure that there's more to it than just checking for spelling and punctuation. No, as a matter of fact, I had to rely heavily on the proofreaders we had there, which were Flo Steinberg and Jack Gable, because I am not a great speller. I can spot things in other people's work better than I can spot them in my own. You know, we're often most blind to our own mistakes but we're really good at picking them out from other people's work. What was an editor back then, I think, is quite different than it is today. Back then, editors had a lot more control over the books they were in charge of. At the time I was hired, I had no plans to be an editor. I get a call out of the blue from Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at the time. He said that my friend Al Milgram was going to leave the editorial staff to be a full-time freelancer. Uh, Shooter didn't feel that any of the current crop of assistant editors were quite ready to promote and that he talked to some people and my name had come up a few times, which really surprised me because I'd never talked about being an editor. Uh, Maybe they wanted to get me to stop drawing. (laughs) So one of the people, apparently the night before he'd had dinner with Bill Sinkevich, who I'd known for a few years, and he talked about 
you know, looking for an editor. And Bill said, hey, you should talk to Carl. I get this call out of the blue. And uh, so I just, after thinking about it for a while, I, I decided to go for it, which um, I'm happy I did. But I always wonder, like, if there was like a, an Earth 2 somewhere where I kept concentrating on the art and the writing, what would have happened? Because around the time I went on staff there is when I felt I was really starting to gel into a, a style and approach that I thought had a chance to be not only good, but popular. It showed up on a few of the covers I did around at, at that time. I went in there and uh, I, fortunately, Milgram overlapped his last week was my first week and helped me a lot. And then uh, I also inherited his assistant at the time, Ann Nascente, who uh, was also a huge help. Basically, an editor back then was in charge of at least five monthly books, plus a handful of special projects or graphic novels or annuals and things like that. They were responsible for hiring the creative crew and for approving every stage of the work as it went through the creative and production process. You know, I started out basically inheriting all the people on my books, and I pretty much kept them in place. I didn't want to go in there and just start canning people because I wanted to put other people on. I I didn't think that was fair. I wanted to try and work with the people that were there. Unfortunately, a lot of them were were good, and I was really into continuing to work with them. Normally, an editor will hire the writer, the artist, penciler, inker, letterer, colorist, all the creative people to work on a book. And Marvel did what was called Marvel style then, which I don't think Marvel does anymore much of it. Uh, DC always did full scripts for their stories and the penciler would receive a full script, which is like a, sort of like a screenplay where except every panel had was described what exactly was going on in that panel and that the dialogue and the captions and the sound effects were already figured out. Whereas Marvel style, as a penciler, you received a plot and they could be anywhere from a couple of pages to, I don't know, five or ten pages depending on the person and the length of the story if they were broken down at all they were broken down like pages one through five this happens pages six to ten this happens so sometimes there wasn't even that much of a breakdown and so it was up to the penciler to figure out what they were going to show what they weren't going to show what they were going to emphasize or de-emphasize what the sense of pacing was going to be and so on and then when the pencils were done again the editor's checking these things on every step of the way before they go to the next step but after the editor approved of the pencils then they would go to the back to the writer to do the finished uh, dialogue and captions and sound effects and a big part of your job as an editor was to pair up the right writer and the right penciler because when you're working marvel style they feed off each other and if you've got the right people the combination creates a better product than either one would do individually if they were working from a full script. But if one of them is lax or flying down on the job or too rushed or something, it can be a train wreck. So a big part of your job is to to marry up the right combinations of people. Then you also have to work with the other departments, the promo and sales department to help get the, you know, the materials they need on time. You know, sometimes other things would happen and they'd want your input on like some licensed merchandise or whatever based on characters you were in charge of and whatever books you had in your office you were basically in charge of those characters so if another office wanted to guest star them uh, they had in theory to get your approval how that character was handled when things happen like when the, the punisher got popular and everybody and their sister wanted to use uh, you know <laughs> the punisher in their books uh, i was constantly fielding all these uh, different ideas for stories. Many of them were pretty whacked, and I had to politely say, 
no thanks. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So looking for a synergy that could work together and that I just, I'd like that aspect where it's just like popular character. Hey, you know what would probably go pretty good? Uh, Punisher and My Little Pony. I think we could really do a hybrid thing of that. No? Okay, weird. How about... We did almost as wonky by having them in parapet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you make fun of them now, but one of my favorite comic books out right now is Transformers and, and My Little Pony. And you would think that <laughs> wouldn't work, but let me tell you, it works amazing. So it, it's the right artist, the right creator, the right people working together. And I think you did that pretty well. I, I think that's one of the keystones of your career. We sent a letter to John Bogdanov saying that we were going to meet with you. And he said that you were one of the greatest representatives of the comic industry, always trying to help new creators. And he specifically remembers you showing him pages of a communist Chinese propaganda comics to illustrate storytelling and negative space. You sent those to us, and we've been looking through those most of today. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I can see your reasoning for it. But just can you talk for a little bit about how you discovered and how you used such an interesting source for teaching? Well, I was always interested in learning more about comics, but at the time, you know, from when I was a fan through my early years as an editor, there wasn't a heck of a lot of literature on how comics worked in depth, like the, the How to Draw Comics, the Marvel Way is all about figure drawing and dynamics and some things about composition. There was no thing about how the heck do you tell sequential visual storytelling so that it's clear and compelling. Mm -hmm. And that's the art at the heart of comics. So there's no reference for that. So I was always looking for insights along those lines. And the prosine squatron, which was mostly aimed at EC people, uh, people who are fans of EC, had a, an issue dedicated to Bernie Krigstein, whose famous EC story was The Master Race, but he did lots of great work. I read that. That's a very good one. That, yes. Yeah. And he was mentioning somewhere in this interview about these Chinese comics that he'd seen, these propaganda comics where the compositions within the panels were, you know, an amazing arrangement of positive and negative space and, uh, and so on. And even though almost all the shots were, were medium distance down shots, they still had all this amazing composition work going into them. I, there was like, I got a quick glimpse of them in the fanzine. So I tried to hunt down the book that he was referring to, uh, which was a collection of all these Chinese uh, propaganda comics. And, you know, back then there was no internet, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. no databases to search and all this stuff. So I, one day when I was walking on uh, Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, which has all these great, used to have all these great bookstores, I look at one of their display tables outside and there it is sitting right on, on top. So <laughs> it was a used copy because it had been out of print already. So I, I grabbed that, ran inside, and paid for it real fast. But the other thing about those comics that just riveted me was the, the way that the main artist, whose um, name escapes me at the top of my head, I think I noted him to you. Original story by Lee Jun and adapted by He Yu Zi. Yeah, that's the second name is the, is the artist. The naturalness of his figures, the body postures, the body language, which is phenomenal. And if you look at all his crowd scenes, every person in there is an individual. You don't have a bunch of people just standing around rigid. They're all got some different posture. And, you know, sometimes some there's some little story going on that isn't even, you know, verbalized. Like there's a sequence in there where there's a couple that are talking about, you know, some ridiculous communist principle. <laughs> there's a, Their daughter is constantly 
you know, either haranguing them for attention or getting bored and doing little things or tugging on them as they're walking. It's just amazing work. My work has always been too stiff to begin with. So looking at that stuff, uh, really, I find inspiring. So that's one of the other aspects of it besides the compositions. It is fascinating because I was looking through this today and I quickly got kind of bored of reading the words there. I wasn't really interested in the words. I, <laughs> it didn't I, convert you? <laughs> no, it didn't really. I, I was kind of, okay, it's kind of boring. But I was fascinated by the stories that I could just see in the people. And like you said, I, I see these sequences that you're talking about too. The way that the child is interacting with the father is pretty much identical to how my daughter jumps on my wife's back or my back, and especially when we're not paying her enough attention. And it is very human and it's very realistic and it is kind of fascinating to see a lot of a lot of the storytelling aspects of in a sense of things that that we really didn't see until later on in the 80s you know maybe uh you know early 90s as far as just the way that the composition shots are so it's fascinating and i i thank you very much for sharing this with us too this is My a pleasure a great find <laughs> I use those things all the time. I've been using them since in my days at Marvel. I still use them now when I'm teaching. So a lot of people I run across so I find them very enlightening. Let's get into Power Pack. I mean, that's the reason we brought you here, but we need to do a lot of setup to get here. So <laughs> what drew you to encouraging this concept to be developed? Well, I'd only been editing for I don't know, six or eight months or something like that when uh, Wheezy, who I'd known a you know, for some years, on a social basis, uh, because uh, through Walter, I'd met her. In fact, when I met Walter in 75, that's around the time they were first getting together. So I've known her for as long as I've known him, pretty much. Probably tell she's one of the easiest humans on the planet to get along with. She walked into my editorial office one day and said, Carl, I've got this idea for a new series. Uh, would you like to read it and tell me if you'd like to, to edit it? So she handed me, um, I don't know how many pages it was, but it was it was relatively substantial. I sat down and read it, and I was immediately charmed by it. She had a different title that she was proposing for the book. It's a clever title, and I, I thought it was a little too clever uh, that for the marketing folks to really handle it, to tell people, you know, to buy this book and what it was about. I thought just the title alone was misleading unless you saw the visuals with it. What, what was the title? Because I'd never heard about this before. I'll leave it to her to, to tell you if she wants, because I I kept expecting her to use it elsewhere for <laughs> something else. But I'm going to have to ask her about that. I don't want to, to blow that for her. I, I was pondering, like, oh, you know, I don't want to just say, uh, I don't think this title works. I want to come back with a, you know, hopefully something plausible that will at least, you know, prime the pump to brainstorm some of it. And I somehow came up with Power Pack. At this point, I can only guess at the origins of it. To me, when I was a kid, a Power Pack was basically AC-DC converter I used for my electric trains and HO race sets. Mm -hmm. she, I mentioned it to her, and she seemed to really like it. I cannot remember. You'd have to ask her. I can't remember what the name of the, the family was at that point, if it was the Power Family, or if she changed the name to go with with the, the new title. I, I'm not sure what's the chicken and what's the egg there. Then uh, she told me about how she'd been talking to this young artist, June, and she had some drawings. And uh, those also were very good and very charming. And so I said, hell yeah, I want to do this thing. <laughs> so we started working on it. And uh, June had never worked on a monthly book before. She'd done very little in comics. And 
weird kind of throwing her into the lake without being sure she could at least dog paddle. Uh, she, you know, immediately started getting to work and started designing a lot of the characters and all that, and most of which I liked. I did um, I did a redesign on uh, a smart ship, and I also did a partial reworking of the snarks. But everything else, June, June did and did really well. I thought what she came up with the kids was great in particular. It was just and Whitey I liked too. Off and running with that, and I'd known Bob Wychuk for a long time. I can't remember exactly how we got him on board or whose idea it was at first to approach him. Probably mine, but for all I know, Wheezy suggested it. I'm not sure. Uh, she might have a better memory for that particular thing. I mean, who knows? Maybe June requested it. I, <laughs> if you find out, let me know. We've got a lot of questions to go back and ask them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make up the answers for things I'm not sure of in the midst of, through the midst of time here. We started working on it, and it, it became clear that turning out 22 pages a month was extremely difficult for June to just jump in and go ahead and start doing that. So we started um, planning ahead to have occasional issues written by Wheezy, but illustrated, penciled by somebody else. And uh, Mary Welsh did the first one, I think it was issue five, something like that. That's how we you know, started getting on those occasional Brent Anderson issues or the Balmeric issue or so on. One of the, we were gonna do one of those fill-in issues at some point, Weezy decided that she was going to cater to my personal interests. <laughs> so uh, she said she was going to do one around the Mets mm-hmm. baseball team. So we had to do research, which meant we had to go to a game mm-hmm. and check out Shea Stadium and, and all that. And so we did that. And there was another one uh, because of my interest in all things aquatic, which was on full display in my office. I always had a couple of small aquariums in my office. So she said, you know, we'll set one up at the, the New York Aquarium on Coney Island. So we took the subway out to Coney Island and took a lot of reference photographs and all that for, for Brent, I think, Brent drew, drew that one. She decided to make it as, as fun for me as it was for her, I guess. Yeah, you they got two stories out of that, and that was uh, issues 9 and 10, and that was Fishtail and Sea Hunt. And then your baseball one, that was issue uh, 13, Fireworks. We were always impressed with Brent Anderson's art on that one because I found a photo that was taken nearly in the same seat that he was drawing from, and it just spot on. You could tell it was the same stadium, and it was very eerie almost the way that he drew that. He's he's awfully good. (laughs) You've got some great artists to work on that book. We've always been impressed with it. There was um, a lot of admiration for the book within the comics community. The big problem was is that most comic artists can't draw convincing-looking children. That Mm -hmm. was my big problem in finding artists. If you see little kids drawn by realistic, relatable, representational little kids drawn by a lot of classic comic artists, they often look uh, misshapen (laughs) and stunted. I like John Byrne's art, and mm-hmm. but you know he was well known on Fantastic Four. He drew some great art, but Franklin Richards never looked right in his, in, when he drew him. But but he could draw everything else really well. So yeah, yeah. I always have the hardest time understanding why artists. It's like it's not like children are mythical creatures. They exist around them. It should be kind. Of, I I just never understand why it's like. Well, I guess a kid looks like a a dwarf or maybe an adult tiny arms and legs i don't know you know it's like there's there's one right there just look outside well, there's, <laughs> so. there's a um there's also 
one or more of the Andrew Loomis books on drawing, Bankets and Figure Drawing Frauds, where he does a chart of figures standing next to each other at all the different ages. And he, he shows how how many heads tall someone is at different ages. Like a grown adult is about mostly seven and a half heads tall. If it's heroic, it's eight, eight and a half, something like that, heads tall. But the younger you are, the fewer heads there are because your head is much bigger than the portion of the rest of your body. So, you know, a lot of the kids that would be around, you know, power pack age size would be maybe four, four and a half heads tall, something like that, mm-hmm. I guess. And people just had trouble grasping it. And the other big thing was that the, sm- the younger you are, you know, when you're an adult, we all learn that, you know, if your jaw is closed, your eyes are about halfway between the very top of your head and your chin, right? Mm-hmm. It's about equal distance. If you drop the jaw, then that changes that proportion. But the younger you are, the lower in your face the eyes are and the bigger the head is because the head grows faster, starts out larger and grows faster than the rest of your body and your face and your rest of your face kind of grows into the head that's ahead of it as you mature. And those are tough concepts for a lot of artists to grasp, even people that draw really, really well when they're drawing adults. I think that uh, with both June and John Bogdanov, they both had experience drawing kids ahead of time. And they were drawing, they were sketching real people and real children. And then they were just able to translate that into more of the cartoon aspect. Yep. Yeah. They, they, you know, June had done that, I think at Six Flags over Texas or, mm-hmm. or, or Georgia or Georgia, something like that. She'd done a lot of sketching of kids there too. And John, I think, told you the story of how. Um, I ex- almost accidentally found out he could draw kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a sketch he had hidden in his portfolio fell out accidentally on my desk. It, it really seems like the secret to being in, to getting into Power Pack is you have to know the Simonsons. That's that seems to be the secret key that was right there. <laughs> John didn't know Weezy or me until he met us at the same time because Weezy and I were in my office talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, who we were going to replace June with because uh, June finally decided to go off and do some other things. In fact, she ended up doing a lot of stuff from my office on Alpha Flight and uh, other things. You know, when I, I was trying to think, you know, and I, you know, I got Brett busy on Stripers Moratory and it was difficult. And then uh, John had, you know, been trying to sell some sort of sorcery samples, I think, to, to Larry Hammond. Uh Larry didn't need any of that. So he came down and talked to me and I didn't need to see exactly what it was, the, the genre I was looking for. As long as someone could draw well, you know, I figured they can do whatever genre it is. And the only sort of sorcery book I'd had was already done, which was um, Solomon Kane. You know, I could tell the drawing was really done well, but I didn't need any artists on any of my other books. I needed an artist on Power Pack. So somehow when we were manhandling the portfolio on my desk uh, to rearrange it or pick it up or whatever, this paper comes sliding out of the side pocket with these really nicely drawn kids on it. <laughs> and uh, so that, um, there, there you go. That, that career was launched. <laughs> I'm going to go off the script here too, because you've mentioned this a couple of times now. And before we start recording, you mentioned that we should ask you about this. We just got done recording uh, a, our show on the what the issue number one, which has the Bauer Brax meeting clunk and dig Nabbit. And, in there, there's a joke 
about Strike Force Mozzarella, where are you? And it seems to me now I'm getting the joke that that's in there because you were taking people off the Power Pack book to go on to Strike Force, and that might be the reason why that joke is in there. I was curious about that. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's now my headcanon. Uh, I don't know. I, remind <laughs> me, did Terry write that? or who? Wrote that's Terry Austin, yeah. yeah. And who did the art on that? Was it? The art was June Brinkman. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Terry Austin, June Brigman, Jim Novak, and Glynis Oliver, and you were the editor. Yeah, Terry was another one of the pros that was always a big fan of the book, as you can tell, because he ended up making contributions mm-hmm. to it. So it was it was great. I mean, you know, it was a it was a hit amongst uh, the professional peers. That was very gratifying, particularly since a lot of people felt that book featuring four young kid superheroes was doomed to die quickly <laughs> in the marketplace. Tell me, I, I don't want you to feel old about it, but I, I was a target audience of the kid <laughs> back late. then. I know, too late, too late, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I was a target audience of the kid, and Jeff and I both were. We were both getting this as it was coming out. I, I came into it a little bit late. I started collecting a little bit after it, it had already started, but I went back and bought all the issues. I enjoyed collecting it. I enjoyed reading it, but my friends who were also collecting comics at the time mocked me that I liked it. And I had to try to defend it saying, Hey, this is not a kitty book. This is a really good book. I like this just like I like X factor, just like I like X-Men, just like I like these ones. It wasn't until I was much older that I realized, Oh, is there a reason why I like all these books? They're all uh, Louis Simonson related. And I was finding out that I liked Louis Simonson is the real key, but they're all friggin' good. They're all good. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get off of what the, you said that you wanted us to tell you how what the came about. When I was a kid, I had enjoyed Not Brand Deck, which was Marvel's first self parody, ECHH, Not Brand ECHHH, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. It looked like the guy that everybody in the bullpen at work on was just having a ball turning this thing out and making fun of their, themselves and their characters. In an editorial meeting, I brought up the idea of bringing back, at least trying a mini series of because miniseries were all the rage at the time, trying a miniseries of a new Marvel uh, self-parody book. In the meeting, uh, uh, another another editor said, oh, I was going to come up with a similar idea to pitch. So the editor-in-chief at the time, Jim Shooter, says, I guess he was playing Solomon or whatever. He goes, all right, Carl, you, you do the first two issues, and the other editor will edit the other two issues. And whichever the, the best one was, if the book carries on, that'll be the editor. Well, the other editor was known for being, you know, very kind of verbally clever and, and, and so on. And I'm pretty straightforward, no-nonsense guy, uh, not known for being Mr. Funny. And so everybody assumed that the other editor's books were going to be a lot funnier than mine. But you don't have to be a funny editor. You have to know what's funny and know the right people to hire to create a funny book. And I think I did that pretty well. So as you can probably tell by who became the editor for the the ongoing series, um, who won that contest. I've been sitting here as you've been talking. I've been trying to look up and see exactly who it was. (laughs) I haven't found it yet. I don't don't want to slam them in in a... I will look it up later, and I'm sure that the fans at home can figure it out as well. (laughs) I can fathom a guess. (laughs) 
Hey, one of the things that we noticed in our read through of the Power Pack series is how important an editor is for the tone and feel of the book. And we saw different creative teams come in and we could recognize a different take that a writer or a penciler would bring. But it was when the editors changed, uh, which they did kind of in rapid succession, that we could really tell there's a different feeling in the book. So how much control does a good editor have over a title? When I got promoted to executive editor, back then executive editors, uh, there was just uh, Mark Grunahl was the first one and I was the second one. We, we were overseeing all the other editors. We'd divvy up which editors would be answering to which executive editor. Because there was just the, the company was just growing so fast. There were so many editorial offices turning out so much product that the editor-in-chief couldn't keep track of it all, so he, that was Tom DeFalco at that point. So we brought in Mark Grunewald to be his executive editor, and then um, Archie Goodwin left to go back to D.C., so they brought me in as executive editor to initially to look at the epic stuff, but also to eventually divvy up into the Marvel Universe as well. But they would not allow executive editors to hands-on edit any books anymore. It was a really strange situation because I really missed that. Uh, not only did I edit a lot of my books, I also did a lot of the layouts for the covers on my books. Uh, that's one of the things I did when I came in in the wee hours of the morning before anybody else got there is I'd, I'd work on the cover layouts and give them to uh, other people to finish. Uh, a lot of times Kevin Nolan would save my ass by turning my, my little sketches into these amazing pieces uh, somewhere on his old blog website, he's got one or two examples of like, you know, these cat scratches I gave him and the stages he went through to turn them into these amazing covers. I wanted, I, I wanted to keep my hand in creatively, but also I wanted to vary the covers month to month enough so that back then a lot of the books were still sold on the, uh, the newsstands. Mm -hmm. And if two months of books of the same title happened to accidentally be racked at the same time that, you know, the, the retailer forgot to yank the old ones or whatever. And both of the covers look very similar. You know, they might, someone might not pick either one up or might uh, pick up the wrong one. Um, anyhow, so I, I really missed that aspect of it, but they took all of the books I had been line editing and gave them to the different line editors to work on. I do not, Remember, everybody ended up editing Powerpack after that. Was Higgins one of them? Higgins, Higgins? Higgins was a writer. Um, but as far as the editors that came off to you, there was Dan Chichester. 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 Mm -hmm. Daryl Edelman did one. And then Michael Rockwitz was the editor until the ending. I didn't remember about Chichester. Chichester is a good writer and editor, so I'm assuming hopefully that book was okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, he did. He did three of the books there. Um, he did fifty three, fifty four, and fifty five. Uh, Who do you have writing them? Do you know? Uh, Terry Austin was one of them, and that one is not that good. Uh, but he was the editor for Dynamite. That was the one that uh, Judith, Judith Bogdanoff wrote, and then he did the Dwayne McDuffie Mysterio one. Which those two were those two are all right, but the the um, we were talking about a bad mix up of of uh, characters. Uh, the the one that he did with Terry Austin that was the oh help me out uh, the acts of vengeance tie in with Power Pack versus uh, Typhoid Mary. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those those uh, cross the board tie ins were uh, 
that's that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. But um, the uh, the yeah, but I I I don't think that you know outside of maybe Chichester, I don't know that anybody else that you mentioned there had a real feel for the book. Uh, that's just my opinion. I might be wrong, but either that or they felt compelled somehow to radically alter it to whatever vision they had or the writer they hired had, which, you know, I can somewhat empathize with. I remember at the time reading one or two of those issues and I just couldn't read them anymore because to me it was like, you know, seeing my babies, uh, you know, mishandled. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if Wheezy felt similarly when she read them or if she read them or not. If she'd be too nice to say so, she did. The comment that she gave us when they brought her back to do the holiday special, which was the cleanup and resetting of Power Pack back to zero. She was like, they brought us in. They were angry. We were angry. And we came in and fixed it. <laughs> and they did a great job of fixing it. They really did. We got finished rereading it ourselves and looking at it. And it's, it does a masterful job of doing a lot of retconning and bringing things back to the way they should be and, and explaining away a lot of things that did happen. Yeah, I think Wheezy is an amazingly nice person, but her way of describing it was pretty much is like, I wanted to put my toys back on the shelf where I had left them. Yeah. Is basically yeah. what it boiled down to. So. Yeah. She's got a way of putting things, and even if it's in a difficult situation, she she has what Ralph Macchio termed the Wheezy effect and her superpower. She could have like a couple of uh, creators, like when she was working with uh, Claremont and Byrne on, on X-Men, and those guys often didn't see eye to eye, and both of them are very highly opinionated people and can get bent out of shape. They could go into a meeting with Wheezy of talking about what's going to be happening in the upcoming storylines, and they would be at loggerheads about this, that, or the other thing. You know, a lot of editors' offices, and probably including mine, you know, someone would, at least one person would have come out of that meeting, if not both of them, being pissed off uh, because they didn't get their way. You know, the door would open from others meetings in Wheezy's office, and both Claremont and Byrne would come out smiling, each thinking that they'd gotten what they wanted, when in fact, more than likely, Wheezy had come up with a twist that was better than either of them, <laughs> and she somehow convinced them, without trying, that those guys had come up with it. They had such great ideas. And it's, she does it effortlessly. Like, you know, I don't want to get the impression that she does it like she's got, she's this friendly Machiavellian. Uh, she's, uh, she's just such a genuinely nice person who's always interested in trying to get the best stuff done and, and you know, have everybody play nice whenever possible. That uh, it's hard to. I remember the first times I met her professionally, I'd done a, a, a color illustration on spec that I wanted to be on Savage Sword of Conan, she was editing at the time. And I brought it and showed it to her. And she basically told me, I can't exactly remember how, very nicely, that it wasn't good enough to be a cover, but she'd love to shoot it in black and white to be an inside frontispiece on the inside front cover. And I went out there with a smile on my face. (laughs) Uh, So there's there's just a knack that she has. I wish I could, you know, distill that essence and, and, uh, and be able to use it uh, myself. But uh, this made me think of a question of, did you find it easier to work with as an editor with people who were editors in the past? Hmm. Well, Marvel at that time, most, 
most of the editorial staff, not all of it, most of them were creators in some way, whether they were writers or artists or both. Like, uh, you know, I replaced Milgram, who did everything, uh, writing, penciling, inking. You know, of course, Archie was one of the most uh, revered writers and editors in the business. Penny O'Neill, same thing. Uh, Larry Hama wrote and drew. Grunewald uh, wrote, and he also drew that Hawkeye miniseries, but he mostly concentrated on writing. Bob Budiansky wrote and drew. Uh, Shooter wrote. You know, almost everybody up there was a creator in some way. So I guess it would depend on the personalities because if they all have experiences being on both sides of the editorial desk, uh, hopefully that gives them more insight into what needs to get done and, you know, why they can't always get their way and that sort of thing. You know, it just depends on the individual's personalities, I think. Since you left Power Pack, do you ever think back and think about any stories that you would have liked to have written or liked to have done on Power Pack that you left on the table when you left? There probably were, but I, I don't know that I recall them now. I remember I was, for a lot of the books I'd, I'd edit, I'd have uh, story ideas, uh, but I didn't want to force feed them to the writers unless they were struggling to come up with something. You know, that didn't happen with most of the writers that I, that I had, like um, Mike Barron on The Punisher, you know, you know, every five seconds he was coming up with another story idea. So that's why eventually I decided to, 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 to write and do layouts for my own Punisher title because he didn't need any other ideas that came up. Uh, Wheezy, uh, she was never short on ideas. Lord knows Bill Mantlow was a machine that just came up with a gazillion ideas. Mark DeMattis, no shortage of ideas there. Uh, Peter Gillis, definitely no shortage of ideas. So I must, you know, maybe somewhere I've got these little sticky notes that I would jot these things down somewhere and they're lost in a file somewhere of, of ideas. But off the top of my head, no, I would have liked to have seen more of worlds of the uh, chameleons and the snarks and, you know, dig a bit deeper there mm-hmm. than we did. Get more I think of, that's about it. Get more of the outer space and see more of the, the those interplays are other worlds that are around there or, or how the different space factions work together. Yeah. And, and how the, you know, the personalities were, Wacy was pretty good. Like, you know, the snarks could have been just like these two dimensional cardboard cutout characters. She added personalities to, to a lot of them. And I would have liked to see more of that about the intrigue going on and the relationships within the snark world, things like that. Well, I don't know if you realize it or not, but, uh, that's one of the things that's happening at Marvel right now is they're actually exploring the snark wars. Power Pack's not involved, but they are exploring the snark wars. So, oh, <laughs> well, they also, they also had the chameleons, uh, working are their Their chameleons were somehow intertwined with the inhumans too. So the, the story ideas are still out there. Marvel still kind of plays with those every now and then, which is, is nice to see. Yeah. I don't, I'm afraid I don't keep track of a lot of, you know, what's been going on at Marvel and, and anywhere near recent times. Uh, once in a while, I'll pick something up when someone I know really recommends something. And it's so rare that I do anything creative for it. I think the last thing I did was um, I wrote, penciled and inked a one page for Marvel Comics 2001 or whatever it was. And then before that, I'd written uh, a what if story about what if Peter Parker had become the Punisher. <laughs> They need, they need to get you back sometime soon. <laughs> was, was that the one where he had the uh, bullet shooter, like the wrist wrist guns? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm like, this is sounding familiar. Okay. 
uh, it, it was, uh, I guess, about two years ago or something like that. I got called up and asked to do that, I guess, because of my Punisher stories. But uh, I really wanted to do the layouts for it, too, but they'd already hired somebody else to do the layouts. So a lot of these visual storytelling things I really wanted in the book didn't make it into the book. So there's some areas that are more confused than I would like. But that cover, if you look at it, uh, it was sort of a takeoff on a cover that was from the original Punisher Limited series that had, the cover had been penciled by uh, Mike Zeck and uh, finished airbrush art by Phil Zimmerman. And whoever was doing this kind of homage to that cover for the uh, What If story, if you look towards the bottom, that person has one leg. Uh, the, the garbage can, despite the fact of his positioning, can't possibly be hiding a pelvis in another leg. Huh. There. Do you see that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but when I pointed it out to the editor, they said it was too late to fix. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of that kind of happens where it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's already, it, it's already out there and all the... Uh, the press and uh, publicity stuff. So yeah, like, too late. Yeah, if people mention it, we can cover it later and just go. Yeah, these <laughs> things happen. Besides, we're we're th- we're three months ahead. We're in the future now. That was the past, and we don't. I don't recall that now. <laughs> we're moving on. Got to move on to the next big thing. <laughs> but uh, I enjoy the rare rare chances I get to to do stuff there. It's nice. There's some, even though most of the people I worked with up there ages ago are gone. Um, I you know. Ralph Macchio still does work there, and Tom Brevoort is there. Everybody else there is new, but the few of the new people that have, uh, are new to me, a lot of them have been up there for a long time already, uh, I've met and I liked a lot. Uh, Mark Basso, the, the guy that edited the What the Story, uh, he's a really nice guy, very sharp guy. Well, they are getting um, Wheezy and June back. They had them come back for a one-shot last year i think it was or year before last and but they also have another mini series that they're coming out with hopefully before the end of the year we should be seeing that one which would be nice wow. that they're doing power nice. pack again there and there was a power pack series that just got that was just done by that's that poster there uh, north? that was by that right? chris north yeah. and i cannot remember the other name on the top of my head but it was really good it was it was oh, a yeah? good they got the real essence of the kids even having them in today's life, but they got the good essence of the kids, which was nice to see. Well, next time I'm at the local comic shop, I'll check it out. I, I think you would. I think you should. It's it's a good little story, and I think it's pretty fun. Another point that John brought up when we wrote to him was your willingness to allow creators to work on other properties when they were assigned to a series. He pointed out how you allowed him space to work on Fantastic Four versus the X-Men by having guest artists come in. How do you manage shifts in artistic tone without sacrificing the potential ire of fans when there are changes between the issues like that? I, I don't remember everything about the, those episodes at this point, but um, my guess would be that I was thinking that if John was interested in doing that and it was a temporary thing, I'd much rather keep him happy by doing that so that he'll come back to Power Pack than him having to make a decision where you know, I've got this big high profile money making thing over here being offered to me. As long as someone, either the creator and or the editor on a project like that, gives me enough lead time to not mess up my schedules, you know, I'm fine with that. And if you find the right people to fill in, that works too. And uh, it's nice to get a little bit of variety in there once in a while, especially if you know that the, the person that you, you really 
went on there full time is coming back. So I tried to be as uh, progressive as I could in that that sort of thinking, uh, and also you know put myself in his position as someone who was on that side of the desk too. What I what I didn't care for is when editors would you know behind my back try and lure one of the artists that worked for me to work on their books. And then if they were successful, suddenly the artist immediately leaves with no warning and totally screws up my schedules and my plans. You know, that, that happened repeatedly with the X office uh, for a while there. Not when Weezy was there, after that, after Ann too. If you think about it, there's a lot of the creators on the X titles in the early 90s were people that came through my office. I got into a little bit of um, friction with uh, that editor when, I don't know how many times this had happened when uh, my schedules got turned topsy-turvy because uh, their schedules were so late that they had to get somebody immediately on them, which would uh, screw me over. Uh, I would have been happy for the success of any of these people. Most of these people came in the business back then. The X-Men was their favorite mm-hmm. group. And get a chance to work on them was, was great, and, which was fine by me. I just wanted it done in a, uh, a more professional manner. You all have to work with each other, too. And it's not like they aren't going to be coming back or there's not going to be a change at some point in time and you're going to be hiring them for something else. Or you're going to be working with these people again. And it starts to leave a lot of bad blood. Yeah, it can be. I, I usually, you know, bite my tongue on those things that for the sake of um, internal calm amongst the, the staff. And unfortunately, that kind of stuff is very rare during most of my time at Marvel. There was just uh, one time too many at one point during an editorial meeting. I opened up a bit about what I thought was a, a lack of professionalism there. Probably permanently scarred that relationship. That, that was going to be one of the questions we were going to ask you about uh, some of the behind the scenes and how you had to protect your creators and, and allow them those opportunities. <laughs> but it sounds, like, it sounds like that's exactly what you did in those occasions, not only to pr- protect the creators, but also to protect yourself as well. I was a big believer that one of your main jobs as an editor of periodicals was to produce reliably periodically. And so um, I figured if you can't do that, you have no business being in that business. Mm-hmm. So Virginia Romita was the traffic manager. and She had these charts for when ideally all the different stages of a book would have worked on it. So if you had a monthly title, ideally there'd be five different issues in various stages of production. So I like to follow the Virginia Ramita schedules as, as much as possible. And that also meant that when something did go wrong, like one of my creators, you know, got ill, there was a death in the family or something happened, they wanted to go on vacation, whatever, I could usually absorb that hit and figure a way how to catch up without losing the, the, the services of that person mm-hmm. uh, for a while. Other offices were pretty much... Some of them are flying by the seats of their pants, uh, <laughs> and, you know, just barely scraping stuff out in time for to get to make the, the drop dead shipping date. I couldn't live like that. Uh, I didn't want that. And I didn't think it was very professional to, you know, consistently teeter on the razor's edge like that. Uh, so there was a different philosophy there. Well, I know that from fans' perspective, it, it's always a lot more reliable. You you tend to have a little bit more love for those comics that are coming out when you expect them. Oh, it's four weeks out. 
We're going to get mm-hmm. our book. You know, we don't know that there's going to be a delay or, you know, there's not going to be an interruption to the storyline that we're expecting. So the other aspect of that is for the, the company's sake, like if you're just one week late on your ship date, when a title comes out on the racks, a huge proportion of the sales are in that first week. Mm-hmm. And after that, it tails off very rapidly. So if you don't show up the week someone's expecting it, they may buy buy something else, or they may realize I can live without this, mm-hmm. this one. Or when it, it does come out, they're not budgeted for it because they've got all the normal stuff they, they've got lined up to buy that week. Mm-hmm. If you do that often enough, you know, these companies are businesses they they have publishing plans and expectations for revenue based on what they're turning out and if you're screwing up those sales estimates because you can't get your book on the racks on time to me you have no business being an editor mm-hmm. that's just me no i i'm with you on that i we may have a tiny little part or a tiny little podcast that we do here, but we have stuck with it that every other week we're going to put out a show. It's always going to be on Sunday and we've stuck with that. And the fans that we have know that they can expect it. Take that to the bigger level with the comic books. Like this is what you expect from the comic book. This is what you expect from any business. So it's a good, good procedure to have. And if you break that chain, there's a good chance you're going to lose some folks. Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of which, in order for us to continue our tradition of an episode every two weeks, we're going to stop this interview right now and come back to it in two weeks' time. I promise you we have more to talk about with Carl Potts, and it's really good, including some questions from our listeners. But we're going to save that for another time. And for now... Shout out time! We like to recognize those listeners that take the time to write in or leave us a review. This is for episode 84, where we covered part two of the fantastic Power Pack holiday special, Small Changes. Al Sedano and the Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. AJ. Charles Gears. Charlie Rose. Craig McNichol. Clinton Robinson and his shows Fan Film Fridays and Coffee and Comics. Craig McNichol. Ed 209. Rectal. Gotham's Kitten. Green Lantern HG. Hoover Jeremiah and the Four Million Years Later podcast. Jeremy Daw. Luke Giaconetti. Sean and the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. Sebastian. Tim Price, the podcrasher, and his show, The Outsiders. Waffles from Waffles and Mario Talk About Things, who says, Romance and Christmas? Those people at Jeff and Rick Present know what they're doing. And also, we need to thank our Patreon supporters, starting with adorably astonishing and amazing Andrew Burns. Cheerfully cheeky and charming Char Logan. Challenging cheesy and chuckling Charles Gears. Destructive and devastatingly delightful Damian Witter. Dynamically dangerous and devious Doug Jones. Exciting, energetic, and entertaining Edward Verrochi. Jesting, joking, and jovial Jeff Pollier. Just jealous and jeweled Jeremy Daw. Muscly, mighty, and meticulous Matthew Birdsey. Mythical and magnificent monologuing Matthew Lazarowitz. Rudely rhyming and running Rustin Fritcher. Steely, salty, and steamy Sailor Bear Zodar. Sad and sickeningly silly Shag Matthews. Strange and stirringly steady Stephen Gray. Tyrannically terrifying and tame, Tim Price. Technically terrific and triumphant, Todd Enoch. Weird and wonderfully wacky, 
wind. Be sure to check out our other shows that we're on, including our junior agent submissions on the MI6 Rogue Agent episodes of Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast and monthly Monday Movie Muckabout on the Longbox Crusade. And we have some merchandise available on Redbubble. Go to redbubble.com and search for Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Jeff and Rick present is a bi-weekly self-produced podcast recorded in front of live studio audience of one blue pen in portland oregon if you would like to interact with us through the magic of the internet you can do so through twitter at jeff and rick present our facebook page jeff and rick present our email address jeff and rick present all one word at gmail.com or at our website jeff and rick present also our youtube channel is at jeff and rick present and if you would like to help support our show we are on patreon you can find us at patreon.com jeff and rick present all one word we are also a proud supporter of the Hero Initiative, and we will be donating 10% of our Patreon donations to this great cause. We encourage everyone to give what they can to this worthwhile organization that helps the creators who provide us with such great content. Go to HeroInitiative.org to find out more. Please rate and review us wherever you can. Tell your friends about us and share your love for us on social media. And as always, we want to thank the powerful people in our packs. My wife, Cindy, and our daughter, Carrie. My fiance, Hillary, and our daughter, Aurora. Stanalevia Swelter Storfi, Fungula Panchex, Gardener Eye Massage. And uh, I can't, of course, uh, forget Episemian Australia, which is, may, might be my favorite. We, we love, you. love you. Until next time. Costumes off. Our theme music is 80s action by Kevin McLeod at decoptech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. The way we do stuff, we do, we do outtakes at the end because <laughs> okay. we mess up so much so I, and I, I, I invariably just go off topic and start skewing into and, and this is, the world. This is, blew my blew my cue there, so uh, I'll give it a go here. <laughs> you ready? Yeah, go ahead.